From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, and the Pacifica Radio Network, this is the Beloved Community. The aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the Beloved Community. The aftermath of nonviolence is redemption. The aftermath of nonviolence is reconciliation. The aftermath of violence, however, is bitterness. This is the thing I'm concerned about. Let us fight passionately and unrelentingly for the goals of justice and Let's be sure that our hands are clean in this struggle. Let us never fight with falsehood and violence and hate and malice, but always fight with love so that when the day comes that the walls of segregation have completely crumbled in Montgomery, we will be able to live with people as our brothers and on the beloved community, we address the philosophical and spiritual foundations for nonviolence, activism, political engagement, and peace building. The goal is to gain inspiration, solidarity, wisdom, and insight for your own activism. I'm John Schock. Today on the beloved community, I speak with Sarah Jaffe. I don't want to say that we're all going to have a kumbaya moment. Um, and everybody's going to come together, people who voted for Bernie Sanders and people who voted for Donald Trump. But we we are mad at the same things a lot of the time. And the question is how we figure out how to agree on solutions to those things. But, you know, when I'm talking to Tea Party people, they're mad that the banks got bailed out with $700 billion of our money. They're mad that, you know, that they're losing jobs or that somebody else lost a job or that their, you know, Social Security, or not Social Security, their, um, you know, their retirement savings lost value in the recession. they're mad at very much the same things. And the question of, of how we actually figure out how to talk to each other is a really important one. But I see some of that in some of these movements where people are really kind of coming together over things that they didn't think they had anything in common. Sarah Jaffe will be talking about her book, Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. We also listen to good tunes on the beloved community. I'm going to speak also with singer-songwriter Carrie Newcomer about her new album, The Beautiful not yet. There's a story, there's a sweetness at the edge of in between. I feel it nearly trembling. The restlessness, the quickening, the almost but not yet. Sarah Jaffe and Carrie Newcomer, now on the beloved community. Sarah Jaffe is a Nation Institute fellow and an independent journalist. She's written for The Nation, In These Times, Washington Post, Atlantic, and is the co-host of Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast. We're going to discuss her book, Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. The book has received a great deal of praise. Truth Out called Necessary Trouble one of the most essential books of the year. Welcome, Sarah, to the beloved community. Hi, thank you for having me. You know, what I get from reading your book is that we should be hopeful and energized about the creativity and possibilities regarding activism. Do you intend to make us feel hopeful about that? I do. You know, I had a friend read a a draft of this book before I turned it in, and she said, you know, this made me angry, and it made me feel better about myself because it made me feel like things weren't my fault, and that was exactly what I wanted to hear, to to make people uh, fired up and and ready to go. Your research uh, for this book was to hit the streets and talk to people Mm -hmm. about what they're feeling and doing. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, uh, What did you do and see? 
Yeah, so I have been, uh, well, I was the labor editor at Alternet when I came up with the idea for this book, and I had been covering Occupy Wall Street and things like that. And, you know, obviously I was even, people were even interested in hiring a labor editor because of the protest in Wisconsin in 2011. And so I was covering a lot of this stuff, and I started to think about, like, well, maybe there's actually something going on here that is, you know, that we're in what Francis Fox Piven calls a new, you know, a new cycle of protest. Um, and that means that we, you know, that we're going to see more. And that certainly happened. You know, 2012, I started thinking about this book. Uh, 2013, 2014, we saw those, you know, the fight for 15, our Walmart strikes, the beginnings of Black Lives Matter. And that has only grown bigger. And then this year, of course, we have this kind of off the wall presidential election. Once I convinced a publisher that there was actually a protest movement going on that I wanted to, that they wanted to publish a book on, I was able to actually go do some traveling. So I went to North Carolina to talk to people who were involved in Moral Mondays. I went to St. Louis and talked to the people who'd been involved in the Ferguson protest. Went to Seattle where they were the, you know, the first city to, um, the first major city to have a $15 an hour minimum wage. And of course the first place in the country to have a $15 an hour minimum wage was SeaTac, Washington. And so I was able to go there and talk to the workers and the local officials who made that happen. Um, and yeah, it's been a really interesting experience because I think a lot of New York journalists don't get out of New York very often. And what you found uh, when you talked to these people um, was that sense that it isn't personal, that the, or, or they felt it was personal, their problems. But really, uh, yeah. as they came together, they found, no, there, there are political causes for these problems. Right, and it's it's very interesting. One of the, the people that, the stories that I keep reading and keep getting asked about is Nancy Daniel, who begins my chapter on debt and debt resistance. And, you know, she was this woman who had worked all her life. She had her condo that was the first one she'd bought after she'd been divorced with her own money, her own credit. And she lost one job after September 11th in that recession. She lost another job where that company decided to move from outside of Atlanta, where she lives, to um, somewhere in Texas for even lower wages. Um, and so, you know, after that, she was in her, you know, mid to late 50s as this is happening. And it's harder and harder to get a job at that age, especially she worked in publicity. And, you know, she's watching the jobs she's applying for get given to people who are half her age. And so when she starts to find that, or she, when she starts to get letters about her mortgage that are threatening to foreclose on her house, she doesn't, you know, she's thinking I'm a bad person. I didn't pay my debts. This is my personal failure. And when she finally reached out for help and found the people at Occupy Homes Atlanta, um, just an Occupy Wall Street spinoff that did foreclosure relief work, um, they introduced her to other people and they talked to her about shame very directly and said there is no shame here this is not your fault and really talked about the structural problems that made created the foreclosure wave that saw you know somewhere around six million homes foreclosed upon and part of this strategy of this new neoliberalism is to really mm -hmm. put the blame on the victims and and increase that level of shame yeah exactly and it's really um it's a, I, I don't want to dig too deep into talking about neoliberalism because all your listeners will go to sleep, but I think that there's a very specific way that under the last 30 or 40 years of neoliberal capitalism that shame and personal responsibility and your personal, like the privatization 
of public goods has also played out in the privatization of problems and our our everything that we have to do, everything that we have to deal with, everything that we struggle with is pushed back onto us. It's your problem, nobody else. Your boss doesn't have to provide you with health insurance. It's your problem, right? Or your mortgage is, you know, going underwater at the same time as millions of other people, but it just must be your fault. And so what is happening with these activist movements is that it is becoming an empowering thing because people are discovering right. that they have a lot in common, even when they might have had differences. Right. Uh, for example, uh, one of right. the surprises of your book uh, is the Tea Party. Uh, and is, is it true that those on the left may have more in common with those folks than we think? Yes, I definitely think so. Um, I think that, you know, I, it's easy to overstate that. I don't want to say that we're all going to have a kumbaya moment. Um, and everybody's going to come together, people who voted for Bernie Sanders and people who voted for Donald Trump. But we um, we are mad at the same things a lot of the time. And the question is how we figure out how to agree on solutions to those things. But, you know, when I'm talking to Tea Party people, they're mad that the banks got bailed out with $700 billion of our money. They're mad that, you know, that they're losing jobs or that somebody else lost a job or that their, you know, Social Security or not Social Security, their, um, you know, their retirement savings lost value in the recession. Um, they're mad at very much the same things. And the question of, of how we actually figure out how to talk to each other is a really important one. But I see some of that in some of these movements where people are really kind of coming together over things that they didn't think they had anything in common. Also, understanding who really the uh, the opponent is in all of this. Yeah, and that is, you know, I think that that's a big question of of the difference between the Tea Party and and Occupy, right? If the Tea Party, if you have people in the Tea Party who are mad because the banks got bailed out, but they're mad at people who got sold, you know, fraudulent mortgages, we have to, you know, flip that script and talk about who did the selling of the fraudulent mortgages to millions of people around the country. Um, but it is a question of like, you know, now people are mad. Now who are they blaming? And that will tell you a lot about um, the structure that that movement's going to take. You're listening to The Beloved Community. My name is John Schock. Uh, you spoke with John Lewis, a congressman and former leader of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, the title of your book, Necessary Trouble, came from that conversation. Uh, was that conversation uh, somewhat pivotal for you? I, you know, I think it was really fascinating. And it was, I was interviewing him about his book, March, which now is three volumes of a, of a memoir told in comics. And I was talking to him while the Dream Defenders were in, they were um, occupying the Florida State Capitol after George Zimmerman was acquitted for killing Trayvon Martin. And, you know, I had just talked to some of the, the folks from the Dream Defenders and written an article about that, and here I was sitting down with John Lewis and going, you know, um, what advice do you have for young people? And that's where he said, um, you know, sometimes you got to find a way to get in the way and create some good trouble, necessary trouble. And that's, of course, where the book title comes from. And, you know, there's a people ask me if there's like a generational tension right now, if, if there are, you know, if there are older people who don't understand what the, the so-called millennials are up to, right? Um, and I don't think that that's true. I talk to a lot of people who are, you know, or are my parents' age, who are involved in these movements. I'm talking to people like Nancy Daniel, who is, you know, in her late 50s, who is looking at retirement in a 
you know, in the post-crisis era. Um, and I talk to people like John Lewis who are, you know, saying to the young people, like, yes, you do have to find a way to disrupt business as usual in order to get your voices heard. Yeah, let's talk about disruption. Uh, you quoted also Reverend uh, William Barber of Moral Mondays uh, in North Carolina yep. by saying, our job is to shock uh, the nation's heart again. Uh, and These movements yeah. are social defibrillators. Uh, tell us about the importance of disruption, where you've seen that happen. Yeah, I thought that was such a great line, wasn't it? Um, we've had protests. It's not like there were no protests in the Bush era, certainly, right? There were massive, massive marches around the world against the Iraq war. Um, there were all of these things happening. But what we've seen in the last, you know, six, seven, eight years is that people are really finding ways to um, to more effectively hold up business as usual, right? To more effectively um, force people to pay attention. So whether that's, you know, occupying a park and refusing to leave, whether that's taking over the, you know, the Wisconsin or the Florida state capitol, um, whether that's blocking a highway, whether that's getting, you know, several hundred people arrested in the North Carolina state legislature, you are doing something that is impossible to ignore and that is um, making the business that you are opposed to harder to achieve. So, you know, in Wisconsin, they were aiming to effectively block the passage of a bill. In North Carolina, they're aiming to disrupt the, you know, the endless process of a procedure of, of uh, bad bills through the state legislature. Um, when the workers go on strike, obviously striking is a way to shut down the business that they work at that depends on their labor. And so we're seeing all of these different ways to do that and to really, um, yeah, it's a, it, I love to talk about disruption because um, the, the, the tech billionaires really love the term disruption, right? Mark Zuckerberg and the Uber guys and everybody else likes to talk about how they're disrupting this business and that business. And this is just disruption is progress. But disruption is actually not the tool of rich people. It's actually the way that, you know, poor people, working people have been able to hear that, get their voices heard. Yeah, the... Uh, uh protests or let's say the strikes or the walkouts on uh, on good mm-hmm. fr- on what I said good friday i mean black friday uh with yeah. uh, with walmart for example that disrupting it uh, right. very strategic right exactly yeah and to to figure out right it's the our walmart the organization for uh, organization united for respect at walmart is what it stands for um has been really effective at, you know, if you'll forgive me the sports metaphor, punching above their weight class. They have a fairly small group of organized workers. They have an even smaller group of workers who are willing to take risks. They have a a decent amount of silent members who are supportive of the organizing, but for various reasons have not been, you know, have been afraid to go on strike. Um, And they have, with a combination of picking strategic dates and times in Walmart's, um, you know, business cycle, like Black Friday, obviously, and really just effectively, you know, advocating for themselves with the wider community, getting a lot of community support and getting a lot of press, they have been able to, you know, shock Walmart into giving a pretty, you know, not a, not certainly not enough of a raise, but a, a raise to its entire workforce that it will never, of course, admit came about because its workers went on strike. But well, you know the Walmart the story. Episode. Yeah, the Walmart story yeah. was um, was really revealing to me. First of all, I didn't realize mm-hmm. until you said how big it was. I mean, what, what was it? The one of that quote oh, yeah. bigger than uh, anything except the U.S. and Chinese armies. Yeah, 
the the world's largest third largest uh, employer, and that is yes, including militaries. That's um, just and col- when you think colossal. About that, yeah, go ahead. And that's that's just the direct employees of Walmart. That's not counting all the people who work for factories that make things that are sold at Walmart, um, the people who work for you know third party companies that do miscellaneous work at Walmart. That's just the people who are employed by Walmart. That's how big it is. So when you add in all the other people who are doing work for things that, you know, that end up getting sold at Walmart or getting the things that are sold at Walmart to Walmart, you have just an astronomical number of people who are somehow, you know, making the Waltons richer. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Sarah Jaffe. She's the author of Necessary Trouble, uh, Americans in Revolt. Uh, Going uh, back to Walmart, and one might wonder, well, why aren't these laborers organized, and and what has been uh, left out of the labor movement that kind of peaked in the 50s, and and what's changing? Yeah, I mean, I think that the labor movement did itself no favors by assuming that certain workers were unorganizable, Um, and the workers who were assumed to be unorganizable, right, were very specific workers. They were in you know, in retail, in places, in service jobs, in places that were majority women, in places that were majority people of color. Um, and so to assume that, like, you couldn't organize people who weren't on a factory floor was a huge, you know, I mean, it was obviously a huge mistake because we're seeing it corrected right now. But it was also, um, it was a particular reflection of who was, you know, who was in charge, who was valued. Um, and the fact that we're seeing the most, you know, the most growth and the most most um, innovative tactics coming out of those industries now is really, you know, it's it's showing how much how much stronger labor would be now if it had, you know, thought about these workers as a serious cornerstone of its, you know, its strategy for winning power decades ago. One of the things uh, the um areas that you talk about is horizontalism, that leaderless mm-hmm. movement in which people take initiative and become leaders rather than kind of following orders from the top down, from the labor bosses, mm-hmm. so to speak. So I was thinking it was kind of like an open source activism. And and, and again, on your chapter yeah. on Walmart, this horizontalism is is the important corrective to uh, the structure of the old style unions. So uh, can yeah, you talk well, a little bit more about how the employees of Walmart are organizing? Yeah, I think that one of the things that we're seeing in the reason that horizontalism is so popular right now is that we're dealing with a moment of massive just loss of faith in elites and the powerful and the people who are supposed to be in charge right americans have you know i like to quote the the poll that uh congress regularly polls but lower than cockroaches uh witches and nickelback um <laughs> you know and there's certainly no love for the bankers or the wealthy in general and so there's really this loss of faith in leadership from above in general. And so if that's true, then how do we organize ourselves differently? And people are experimenting with that. And then also there's just a question of the internet, right? That it has made organizing certain certain types of events, certain ways for movements to spread a whole lot easier because you can just replicate something. You know, people can write up their strategy for something that they did, some tactic, and put it online and say, here you go, do this. You know, people could watch a video from Occupy Wall Street in New York and spread it somewhere else. In the case of our Walmart, you can have a small core of organizers and worker organizers, I mean, people who are still working at Walmart who are organizing this 
organization themselves who can go online. They have Facebook groups. They have, you know, Twitter. They can talk to each other um, across the country, and they can say to somebody, you know, somebody who lives in Maryland can say to somebody who lives in Texas, like, actually, we have the same exact problem at our store. It's probably the company and not just your individual manager or not just this particular place. This is probably a thing that actually comes from corporate, comes from the very, very, very centrally controlled Walmart corporate office in Bentonville, Arkansas, right, that literally controls the temperature in the stores from Bentonville. Um, when I went to the Walmart shareholders hmm. meeting, there was a big, um, they were they were announcing the things that they were doing for their associates to show that they were appreciated. And one of them was like raising the temperature in the stores. Like one degree or something, wasn't it? Yeah. It was like small. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, yeah. wow, this yeah. is an Orwellian so world. Right. And, and they were putting our people makes a difference back on their name badges as opposed to um, save money, live better or whatever it had been before that. And like, I'm like, this is, you know, I mean, that's all well and good if, if people were cold across the country, then good that they were raising the temperature. But like, how about a raise? <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, you talked about social media. Uh, it's almost, it can't really overestimate this. Now, it's been criticized. Oh, you're just uh, yeah. clicking activism. But really, um, yeah. it really has helped uh, on the ground as well, hasn't it? Yeah, well, the real question is is whether you're just clicking on something or whether you are clicking on something and then going to a protest in your town. Right. Right. So when I um, I was in Chicago the week that um, that again that George Zimmerman was acquitted for killing Trayvon Martin, and I you know I well I knew fewer people in Chicago then than I do now, but I was you know I had been there for a couple of days and I just looked online and found where there was going to be a protest and went down to see what was going on. And that was just, you know, I was, I was able to do that in a city that I don't live in where I didn't really know anybody and find my way there because it was on Facebook. Um, and so, you know, Facebook continues to um, change its algorithms like every three weeks, depending on what Mark Zuckerberg had for breakfast or something. <laughs> so it's, it's, not, you know, I wrote an article um, a few weeks ago about this for Moyers and Company because it had already changed, you know, how people are using social media had already changed since the book went to press. And to talk about the way that, you know, when you're dealing with these social media companies that do not have your best interests at heart necessarily, they have the bottom line of Facebook or Twitter at heart. Um, how do you deal with that when you don't control these media that you're using to organize? Because it's an ongoing question and it makes it, it's, you can see it when you see people from like the movement for black lives getting involved in fights over net neutrality and saying we need to have a free and open internet because that's how we have been able to communicate with each other and organize. I'm speaking with Sarah Jaffe. Her book is Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. And you're listening to The Beloved Community. I'm John Shuck. Stay with us. Will you be my refuge, my haven in the storm? Will you keep the embers warm when my fire's all but gone? Will you remember and bring me sprigs of rosemary? Be my sanctuary till I can carry on, carry on. Carry on 
This one knocked me to the ground This one dropped me to my knees I should have seen it coming but it surprised me Will you be my refuge? Carrie Newcomer, Sanctuary. This is the beloved community. I'm John Schuck. My guest is Sarah Jaffe. She's the author of Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. You start off really the book with the, the, the financial crisis of, of 2008, uh, and you write about um, how one movement leads to another. As I was going through your book, it's, oh, this piece picked up here and picked up there, uh, not necessarily by design, but uh, evolution. Uh, for instance, Occupy yeah. Wall Street uh, didn't end uh, when finally everyone just went home. It kind of lives on, shaping movements that followed it. Um, what, what did we learn collectively from Occupy Wall Street uh, that's helpful now? I mean, we learned quite a few things. One of them was that the police will crack down very, very hard on your movement, um, which is actually, you know, what we saw, you know, we saw that pay off in a way where a lot of the young people who might not have otherwise gotten involved with Black Lives Matter, you know, young people who are not from communities that are heavily policed, got involved in that, having had the experience for once of, of you know, police brutality. Um, but we also heard this, you know, the, the we are the 99% and the 99% and the 1% framing was something that had really been hard to say in this country, right? And conservatives would freak out about um, class warfare and say, you know, oh, you can't, you can't say that. What do you, you know, how, how dare you blame these people who just got their, you know, the wealth that equals the bottom 40% of America's wealth um, and, and that's the Walton family, of course. Um, they just got it through hard work. And um, when we were able to actually say, you know, no, we we are the people who are, you know, working and struggling. And there is this tiny group of people who are benefiting from all of our work, all of, you know, the, the mortgages and the credit cards and the student loans that they sell us. Um, and this is actually benefiting somebody for us to be struggling that was a really powerful moment and we've seen echoes of that everywhere and so like when I go back to talking about our Walmart um, Dan Schlademan from our Walmart says that yeah without the way that Occupy started to talk about things it was much harder to talk about the Waltons and talk about that statistic that now I can rattle off about you know the Waltons having the same amount of money as like the bottom half of America or close to it and so we really started to think about sort of class not in the way that like you know class normally gets discussed in America which is like you know is the white working class going to vote Republican this election or something but actually to be like who has power in this country and how is that determined uh, you know the movements uh, you describe are not necessarily part of the election cycle aside from perhaps the Bernie Sanders campaign uh, so uh, they're, uh, they're longer term uh, not focused on for example who's going to be president right. So, but how important right. might be this presidential election? I mean, you know, it's been interesting because it shows that people are still really, really angry out there in this country. Um, I think that both the Trump and the Sanders campaign show that people are really angry and are looking for solutions that aren't sort of the the middle of the road of both parties. Um, and so, you know, when you look at, at the Donald Trump Make America Great Again slogan right he's talking to people who feel like the country isn't great now they have very specific ideas about what's making this country not great that i think are 
incorrect, but that's still speaking to a sense that people have that things are not going well. And when we're looking at Bernie Sanders talking about the billionaires, talking about, you know, the system is rigged in favor of the wealthy, talking about how we need to counter that, we need things like free college, we need things like free health care, um, or, well, universal taxpayer-funded college and health care, we should say mm-hmm. it's not free, but it's, it's, you know, it's universally available based on the fact that you are a person and not based on the fact that you can make enough money or that your parents made enough money. And so it's been interesting as, as a, a signpost for where we are. I think nobody expected, least of all Bernie Sanders, that 12 million people in this country were going to vote for a guy who called himself a socialist, although you all in Seattle might have saw that, seen that one coming a little bit before the rest of us. Um, and we have to continue to look beyond the election I think that that's the really important point here is to say like whatever happens in November whoever wins these fights are going to keep going and sometimes no matter who's in office you can actually with the right pressure change their minds about some things well you know I thought that happened after 2008 and people voted Obama in as the as the peace president uh, and all of these right. kinds of things that uh, and, and what happened is seemed all of the activism just died I mean in terms of mm-hmm. you know protesting wars and all of that kind of stuff that we put a, people put a lot of their cards on Obama on mm-hmm. the figure and this is a yeah. very different movement now isn't it yes I think so I think that there's not going to be a grace period for President Hillary Clinton, if there is President Hillary Clinton, I don't think she gets a, a, you know, a sort of period of time where people are going, well, just let them figure it out. We'll, you know, um, coming out of the Bush years, right, everything seemed so bad. And the, the question was always like, how do we get him out? And how do we keep from replicating that experience? And so it was, you know, we have to elect somebody else. We have to elect Obama. We have to elect somebody who is going to be different. And then we have this massive trauma, this massive financial crisis, this massive economic crisis that, you know, shook the world and is still having repercussions everywhere. Um, that we, you know, or like, okay, maybe this, this is going to be the chance that Obama has to be a really transformative, exciting president who puts forward like a new New Deal. And I remember all those magazine articles so well, you know, um, and it just didn't happen. And we got kind of a, a lukewarm stimulus bill that was mostly tax cuts. And, you know, the, the employment rate has been like slowly, slowly, slowly inching upward. And so we're supposed to think that everything's fine. But, of course, I think, like I said, I think this election cycle and all of these protest movements have, have uh, reminded people that we're not fine. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I think even if Hillary does get elected, um, I, I think now, perhaps with these new protests, we're going to put her feet to the fire a lot more than we did with Obama. Yeah, I think that there's there's just, there's no, you know, that, that period, I don't, I don't see it coming. I don't think that the people who, um, you know, whether or not people vote for her, um, people keep asking me, you know, what are the Occupy people going to do? Are they going to vote for Hillary Clinton? And I'm like, I, you know, some people are going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Some people are going to vote for Jill Stein. Some people might stay home. Some people might write in, you know, whoever, their own name. Like, I don't, I can't tell you what people are going to do in terms of voting. But I can tell you that I think that they're going to keep organizing and they're going to keep protesting no matter who is in the White House, no matter who is in Congress. Um, because that's actually how we've 
shifted things this much so far. And because, again, things aren't getting better. And the, the sort of um, what uh, Zephyr Teachout, who's running for Congress in New York, called the, the 90s robot politics, which I thought was a great line, is just not going to be enough right now. Sarah Jaffe is my guest on The Beloved Community. I'm John Schock. We're discussing her new book, Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. There's another theme that comes up throughout your book, and that is intersectionality. Uh, you, you write that the issues of racism and sexism, of economic and social rights, had to be addressed all at once, not out of an urge to be politically correct or even simply to broaden the size of the coalition, but because they affect people at their intersections. We are a number of different things. Uh, talk a little bit more about intersectionality and why that was uh, why that's so important. Yeah, I think that there's this, you know, sort of tendency, and we saw this again play out in this presidential election in really irritating, grating ways to me at least, um, that this idea that if you talk about class, then you're talking about something that white people have. And if you talk about race, then you're talking about police brutality, but not the fact that, that you know, black and Latino people are concentrated in low-wage jobs. Um, that we're talking about, you know, when you're talking about mortgages and foreclosures, then we're not talking about the fact that, you know, the foreclosure crisis disproportionately affected black and Latino people, and it did so because they had been disproportionately pushed into subprime loans, into predatory loans, in some cases into predatory second mortgages that they didn't need, which literally stripped away the only wealth that some people's families had just begun to build. Um, but these are not issues that hit people just in one way, that they are they affect people in you know ways that reflect how much power they have in society and they affect people as whole people. The series of events uh, since, say, 2008, all of these movements working together, intersecting with one another, has really caused a great deal of consciousness raising, it seems. It, how do you measure that? But w- would, you, would you say that we're, we're getting smarter, maybe? <laughs> I always hope that we're getting smarter. <laughs> I always hope. Um, I, yeah, I have no idea how one would measure that. But I think that we're we're seeing things that we're seeing people sort of understand and talk about issues in a way that had been off the table before 2008, before, you know, the last few years. We really have opened up bigger, broader discussions that are talking about systems, and they're not just talking about laws or or who's going to be president, but they're talking about, you know, if the crisis in 2008 was a crisis of capitalism, then like 51% of people 18 to 29 in this country now say that they don't like capitalism. Like, we're looking at these big, big conversations about how we want the world to be and how we want this country to be that aren't just sort of make America great again, but that are literally like, what are we what do we think is important? What do we think matters? What do we think freedom looks like? Um, and that's a fascinating conversation. And it's, of course, a, a struggle that's going to go on forever, really. But to talk about movements that are moving from like very straightforward demands, like fire this police officer that, that killed this unarmed person, um, that, or, you know, pass a $15 an hour minimum wage to like, okay, what comes after that? What comes after that is we want you to take all of this money that you're putting into policing. Right here in Seattle, they want to make, they want to put a, a 
bunch of money into a new fancy police precinct and people are going, hi, we have a homelessness crisis here. Um, and so, right, when we're talking about that, it's like, okay, do we need to spend that money on a police precinct or maybe we need to spend that money on homes for people who are sleeping on the street? Um, and how do we think about that? And then after that, you know, what comes next after that? What's the next battle to make the world a little bit more like we want it to be? Well, one of the scary things in your, in your book was the militarization of, of the police mm-hmm. and, and, and of everything. Take a moment to talk about our situation there and, and uh, what are some responses to that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's on one level, it's, it's unwise to over-focus on the militarization of the police because the problem for so many people is, you know, policing, period, right? Eric Garner was not killed mm. by a tank. He was killed by a chokehold. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't want to overfocus on that, but at the same time, we're seeing these problems that are, you know, social problems that <laughs> result from lack of funding or things like that um, treated with this police force that not only has literally, you know, military weapons that is rolling down the street in a mine resistant vehicle because, you know, unarmed teenage protesters have mines or something. Um, but it, it affects the way we think about everything, that, like, the, the solution to a problem is always to bomb it or shoot it, um, and that doesn't work. When you um, – there was a study that just came out that showed that something like 50% of the people who had been shot by police have a mental illness, and, like, we have no system, nothing to deal with, no one, no one to call other than the police if, you, if somebody is having a crisis, if somebody is in distress, if somebody is, you know – acting out whatever it is there's no like trained mental health team that you can call that will come help them you just have police and the police are trained to shoot and that's how we deal with problems um and so i think that that is you know it's something that we look at in our foreign policy um and if you look at things like the vision for black lives document that just came out um, last month there is an explicit connection made there between american foreign policy and American domestic policy when it comes to policing. So it's time to make trouble, ladies and gentlemen. Sarah Jaffe, my guest, uh, Necessary Trouble is her book, Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. Sarah, thank you so much for this book and uh, for being with me today. Thank you. Carrie Newcomer is a songwriter, recording artist, performer, and educator. She's released 15 albums, and we are going to talk about her latest album, The Beautiful Not Yet, and its companion book, The Beautiful Not Yet, Poems, Essays, and Lyrics. This is The Beloved Community. I'm John Shuck. A shovel is a prayer to the farmer's foot When he steps down and the soft earth gives way A baby is a prayer when it's finally asleep He whispered amen at the end of the day And a friend is a prayer When they bring over soup When they laugh at your jokes And they don't ask for proof It's a song that you sing When you are alone When you're weary or lonely Or that far from home That's Carrie Newcomer. A shovel is a prayer. This is the beloved community. I'm John Shuck. On The Beloved Community, we seek wisdom, insight, grit, guts, and encouragement for activism. 
Part of that encouragement is in the form of good tunes. Carrie Newcomer has been writing and recording songs that speak to the heart of those working for justice and peace. Her new album is The Beautiful Not Yet, and her companion book is The Beautiful Not Yet, Poems and Essays. Welcome, Carrie, to the beloved community. Great to be here. Uh, The title of your album and companion book, uh, The Beautiful Not Yet, what would you call uh, The Beautiful Not Yet? Is it it a paradox? Is it a tension? Can can you talk more about that? You know, the the song, The Beautiful Not Yet, uh, really came out of the idea that we are always living in now. You know, that it's it's a song about presence, that we are all that has come before, and we're we're not to the next place yet. We're right here and now. You know, we live in a very goal-oriented culture. You know, we're always supposed to be looking to the next place or the next hour or the next day or the next five years down the line. And it's good to have goals for sure, but you know, our lives actually happen right here, right here in this moment. And there's something sacred and holy about that moment uh, if you're paying attention. There's a story there's a sweetness at the edge of in-between I feel it nearly trembling The restlessness, the quickening, the almost but not yet You dedicate your, your album and book to your father, James B. Newcomer. Can you talk about your dad? Oh, my dad, he's a good guy. He's in his 80s, and, you know, he's been a wonderful, he's been an amazing father, but also just an amazing human being and an educator. Uh, Worked a good deal of his life as an educator, a deeply spiritual man. And he taught me a lot about justice, and he taught me a lot about being true, being true to yourself, who we are and how we walk around in the world actually makes a difference. So, so yeah, he's been a great inspiration, and he, and he shows up in my songs. I was wondering about uh, where, where he shows up, sometimes explicitly, but sometimes probably uh, underneath the surface, so to speak. For example, one of your songs in the album is You Can Do This Hard Thing, um, <laughs> yes. about family and, and community, lovers, perhaps all those we need to encourage us and, and maybe push us, whether it's activism or walking through grief. We need the confidence and, and grit, don't we, and some people to help us out. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the running themes uh, on this new album is where do we find help in hard times? You know, what sustains us? What do we love beyond words and measure? But where do we find help in hard times? And, you know, you can do this hard thing. Um, Yeah, uh, in the first verse, I'm talking about being a, a, a young girl and having a hard time with mathematics. And my dad's sitting down at the table and very patiently showing me how to, how to uh, do some, some kinds of calculating. So, so he showed up in that song. But, you know, the entire song really addresses this idea that, you know, there are people in our lives and sometimes it's a community as well who say, you can do this. You can do this hard thing. And I, the phrase affirms that yes it's hard you may not have had to do this before you may not feel very confident or sure about what you're doing it might just be plain old hard but there's also this affirmation that everything has brought you here and you have everything you need to move forward and support for it 
You can do this hard thing You can do this hard thing It's not easy, I know But I believe that it's so You can do this hard thing We're kind of lonely um, in our society uh, Doing it alone, individualism and all of that kind of thing But that, that's pretty hard to do the hard things on our own you know, that myth of the rugged individual, it's a, it's a pretty pervasive kind of idea in our culture. But so often the things that we need, you know, the things that we need are within us and between us. You know, that, that community, that thing that happens between us is so much a part of the human condition and the human story. It's essential to the human story. So, you know, there's songs on this album that, that address that. Several of the songs, at least half the songs on this album, were uh, written for a spoken word and music collaboration with Parker J. Palmer, uh, who's just one of my favorite people and authors on the planet. There's a song called Three Feet or So. It looks at this idea of what we need is within us and between us, that the things that have saved us as people, as communities, compassion, generosity, uh, hospitality, good parenting, a good sense of humor, justice, preservation of, of, of the planet. You know, these things that have always saved us are still here to save us. They didn't go away because we're having a particularly brittle political season. They're right here and completely accessible to us, and we experience them on a daily basis. That's something within us, and it's also between us. It's right here. Now, the stuff that trips us up, it's all right here, too. Um, and we contend with that, and we navigate that. I, I think it's really important in, in, the, in the kind of way we get our information these days. We're getting information from a lot of sources, a lot of sources from without. And for better or for worse, our media is primarily a commercial media, or a lot of it is. And we get a lot of what they believe sells, you know, uh, conflict sells, salacious sells, uh, tragedy as commodity. And we get an overwhelming amount of that. And I think for those of us who, who are paying attention and, uh, and aware of the troubles, the sorrows of the world, and are trying to make our own small difference, that uh, daily barrage of that kind of information is, you know, can be overwhelming. And it can be discouraging. But there is a different set, you know, a different place that we get our news as well. And, you know, if you ask someone, yes, there's greed in the world, but do you know anyone personally? That is generous of heart and spirit. And almost everyone will say, yeah, I know a lot of people like that. Or if you say, yes, we have places where we disagree, but do you know anyone who has reached across some kind of line for for love or for family or for the food bank or for something that they deeply value and almost everyone will say yes I know a lot of people like that I'm like that that's what Parker Palmer calls the news within that yes we're getting a lot of deuce from the outside that's that's lopsided in terms of, of what's happening what's really happening on a daily basis but there is another source of news, and that's from within us and between us. And I take great heart there. 
it's something that gives me great hope and helps me, helps me to balance. I can't change the whole world, but I can change the world I know what's within three feet or so. Carrie Newcomer is my guest. She's... Uh, the creator of a new CD, The Beautiful Not Yet, and its companion volume, The Beautiful Not Yet, Poems, Essays, and Lyrics. And in your companion book, uh, you included uh, your address to graduates of Goshen College. Uh, you delivered the commencement <laughs> address in, uh, in April of 2016. And you told them, uh, on the way to finding and honoring your truest self, you can be guided by another simple but important practice be kind. And one of your poems is called Kindness. Would you mind reading that? Sure, I'd be happy to. Kindness is human size, honest and doable, softening even the hardest of days. The country cousin to love, unpretentious and daily, and completely possible. It takes out its earbuds and listens to your story. It gives up its seat on the bus and hums in the kitchen washing dishes when nobody asked it to. And more often than not, if I start with a little kindness, love is usually following just a few steps behind, nodding and saying, that's the way it's done. Yes, honey, that's the way it's done. That last line, that, that sounds to me like that was someone who said that to you. That's the way it's uh, done, honey. Is that, is, was that, a, was that a, a grandmother or someone? Uh, no. Not necessarily. No, actually, it's it's more of <laughs> what I've said to other people myself. <laughs> ah, good for you. Yeah, that's how it's done. That's usually sometimes it's it's the way we get there. You know, love. Sometimes in in a spiritual community, we talk a lot about love. Mm -hmm. You know, love is important. It's big and it's wide and it's uh, beautiful. But sometimes it's hard to get your arms around love. You know, it's it's so big. But kindness. Like I said in the poem, kindness is human size, completely possible and doable, and it happens every day. And sometimes the smallest kindness can change a person's whole day. You know, and we remember those times. To this very day, we remember those times. So, so kindness is a powerful thing. I'm glad you said that. It's powerful. Uh, kindness is, is, is easily forgotten, it seems, or dismissed as, as, as soft or even weak. We need to be tough and shrill and fight. Uh, I'm thinking of that activist within me. Uh, so is there a way uh, to be kind and to be a, a fighter? Oh, absolutely. You know, there's, there's a whole different kind of strong Courage has nothing to do with being fearless. It has everything to do with loving something or someone so much you'll brave all the scary stuff. To hope is a great act of courage and strength. Hope is not wishful thinking or positive thinking. Hope is, hope is gritty. You know, it's daily. And if you hope, you take the risk that someday your heart will be broken. And then you get up and you do it again the next day. You keep going. To be cynical is so easy. You are never disappointed. You know, there's different kinds of strength in this world. And in my humble estimation, you know, those are the kinds of strengths that are more powerful and, and change the world in a more deep and long-lasting way. 
Carey, a newcomer, my guest. Uh, her CD is The Beautiful Not Yet, and the companion book, The Beautiful Not Yet, poems, essays, and lyrics. Your work has spiritual themes, and, and what I, I really like, and I know your listeners uh, and readers also really like, is that you're spiritual but not pushy. Uh, <laughs> it can be, you know, I just say that. Uh, but you do use the phrase, which I, I a practicing resurrection, which is a wonderful way to say that, and you're very singable, lean into the light. How have you seen people practice resurrection? Well, I should first, you know, credit where credit's due. That's a, you know, that's my tip of the hat or our nod to Wendell Berry, the Mad oh, Farmer's yeah. Manifesto, um, to keep practicing resurrection. Uh, Lean Into the Light is a song that was written, it's, it's actually in kind of a call and response, old-time gospel feel uh, and, and song form because I wanted people to be able to sing along with it immediately. Uh, it's that kind of a song. Sometimes it's just great to say over this refrain, lean into the light, you know, just keep, if we just, you know, if we just keep leaning into something true and of light, something is, you know, there is still something whole and sacred in this world. And if we keep leaning into it, all things are still possible. So, you know, so that's, that as a refrain that keeps coming back and coming back. And the idea of practicing resurrection, yes, if you hope, you will have days when you're disappointed and you get up and you do it again and you keep uh, trying. Justice seems in short supply. You know, in terms of that, too, I should say there's a song called Sanctuary on this album that's kind of the flip side of that in a way. Sanctuary came about, it was, um, I was writing in correspondence with, with Parker Palmer, and something had, had happened in my life, and I asked him, what, do, what does a person do when they're personally or politically heartbroken? How does the, the, the folks in the civil rights movement keep going when they reached, you know, when they came up against so many hard walls. And he wrote back and he said, they took sanctuary and we take sanctuary. I, I loved that concept and that idea that, yes, there's time for action to do our best. There are also times when we need to gather together with either a, a, a single person or with a community and remember, remember what it is that we love uh, the most beautiful values that we carry, to take comfort and courage and strength with others around us, that idea of within us and between us. So that idea of sanctuary kind of came out of you know, that experience of asking the question, what do you do when you are personally or politically heartbroken? Will you be my refuge, my haven in the storm, Will you keep the embers warm when the fire's all but gone? Will you remember and bring me sprigs of rosemary? Be my sanctuary till I can carry on, carry on. This one knocked me to the ground. This one dropped me to my knees. I should have seen it coming, but it surprised me. Will you be my refuge? Oh, but you know what? I'm going to do a little bit here because songs are not just lyrics, songs. The reason why I'm a songwriter is because you get both. Yep. <laughs> the songs and lyrics are music and, and language 
absolutely entwined. And I, I love when people can read my lyrics as poetry, but um, they were intended for music. So this one knocked me to the ground. This one dropped me to my knees. I should have seen it crawling, but it surprised me. Will you be my refuge, my haven in the storm? Will you keep the embers warm when the fire's all but gone? Will you remember and bring me sprigs of rosemary? Be my sanctuary till I can carry on, carry on carry on. In a state of true believers on streets called us and them, it's going to take some time till the world feels safe again. And you can rest here in Brown Chapel or with a circle of friends, a quiet grove of trees or between two bookends. Will you be my refuge? My haven in the storm, will you keep the embers warm when my fire is all but gone? Will you remember and bring me sprigs of rosemary, be my sanctuary, till I can carry on, carry on, carry on. Carrie Newcomer, her CD is The Beautiful Not Yet, and the companion book is The Beautiful Not Yet, Poems, Essays, and Lyrics. Carrie, thank you uh, so much for this and, and for being with me today. Oh, thank you so much. And it's been a delight to speak with you again and and, uh, be a part of this wonderful program. You've been listening to The Beloved Community. The Beloved Community is all about inspiration, solidarity, wisdom, and insight for your own activism. Get a podcast of The Beloved Community, as well as podcasts of my weekly series on Pacifica called Progressive Spirit at ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schock. Be well. Will you be my refuge, my haven in the storm? Will you keep?